Bibles to Galatians chapter 2, and as we do that, we're going to dismiss our children to Children's Church. So if you have little kids who are in pre-K up through third grade, you can meet Miss Sierra in the back for Children's Church. Well, this is a special week for us here at Pinewoods, and normally we have our missions conference earlier in the year, but we're having sort of a special mission Sunday this week as we welcome uh, missionaries speaking on all levels, and uh, John and Teresa Simons were able to speak to us in the Sunday school this morning, and Dr. John Simons will be bringing the word to us this morning. So, Dr. John Simons, please come and bring God's word. And uh, also, Doc, I'm having a little trouble with my shoulder, uh, so any words that you can bring to us? There's, where's Mr. Christopher Perry? Where's Dr. Christopher? Oh, okay. Hey, talk okay. to that guy. Oh, wrong kind of doctor? Okay, well, that's okay. Well, John just finished up his PhD work in, in Australia. It was a very uh, rough season, uh, being with COVID and everything. The lockdowns were very strong in Australia, mm. but he is finished and heading back to Columbia, so... We're grateful you're bringing God's word to us this morning. Thank you, brother. Thank you. I don't feel like a doctor. (laughs) Uh, uh, Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Uh, For me, this is, there's little things that I try to build into. uh, And I, I feel like with this passage throughout the week, I've been wrestling, struggling, and I feel like I need to pause. And really realize that we're uh, approaching the word of God. So if you'll do this with me, uh, I'll speak through it. So this is Galatians chapter 2, verses 17 to 21. This is the word of the Lord. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Oh God, we thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And we thank you that we are not saved by what we do, but we are saved because of what Christ did. I pray that you would impress that upon us as we think about our growth and salvation. And I pray that your word would be clear despite the insufficiency and the foolishness of the preacher. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. If you would put up that first picture... Uh, I brought pictures today, guys. Only three. Uh, But I want to tell you a little bit of a story. They're not very good quality pictures uh, because they're old. (laughs) Uh, This is the house I grew up in when I was a kid. This is in Columbia, South America. And yes, my mom wrote in massive letters, Christ is living and is coming again uh, in the triangles that are up there uh, so that the whole town could see. Uh, As a child, I won't let you know what I thought. Um, But... You can barely see him, and if you slip to the second picture, uh, in the, in, there's those three men that are sitting there. The man that's standing in the middle, his name is Umberto. Uh, he wrote a song. I have verse 20 of this chapter memorized. 
Job just sort of assigned it. And when I saw it, I just about lost it. Because he wrote a song uh, that was essentially this verse. But you know those Sunday school songs where they're trying to cram too much, too many words into the song, and so you're singing, and you're singing really fast because you're about to run a melody line? It was one of those. So it wasn't really well written, uh, so to speak. And Umberto was a pastor of a church, super small church. Uh, he had a fourth grade education. The thing that qualified him to be the pastor of the church was that he knew his Bible best. He never even got out of high school. He never got out of elementary school. Uh, he, the way he pastored the church, he lived in a, 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 a one-bedroom house. He never married. Uh, he lived in a one-bedroom house that was both kitchen and living quarters. Uh, he had uh, a little farm for, that, for food, but it wasn't quite, and it was too, so small that it wasn't quite enough for him to live on. And so he also li- worked as a day laborer, which in Colombia is the very bottom of the pay scale. Uh, you can't, uh, he essentially made about $2.10 a day. Uh, depending on whatever work became available at different farms. The reason he could have gone to go do, you know, longer-term contract work that was more steady, the reason he chose to do that was because in order to pastor, to be able to minister to people, he needed to have a more flexible schedule. So he chose to be a day laborer. He chose to live in this house. Uh, The church could not pay him. They didn't pay him. They could barely keep their electricity on. By the world's standards, Umberto was a failure. He didn't move forward in life. He didn't get a 401k. Uh, He didn't make it out of elementary school. And yet, if you think about the kinds of choices that he made and the why he made them, I want us to think about a life that matters, a life that has purpose. And I want us just for a little bit to kind of step outside of the things that so often drive us. Even in the church, we often say that a successful pastor is one who writes an influential book or is the pastor of first pres of X, right? Those are always the, the ones who made it. A successful missionary is somebody who finds the cure for Ebola or plants 400 churches. A successful Christian parent is someone whose kids skip adolescence. <laughs> a successful high school graduate is someone who has their life planned out to a T. They've got... They're, they've been accepted to a college. They already have a 401k, and they're 16 years old, right? I mean, we just there's these there's these measures of success. There's the measures of where we should be, what we should do in life. But what I want us to focus on is being versus doing. When it comes to our sanctification, when it comes to growing in Christ, and usually when I preach on sanctification, or when I've done it in the past, I focus on. Uh, how to repent from sin, or here's six things that you can do to grow spiritually. But in this passage, it has nothing to do with it. Paul encourages, rather than focusing on what we do, we should focus on who we are. Who are we? We are loved by Christ. We don't focus on what we do. We focus on what Christ did. What did he do? He loved us, and he died for us. Anything that we do flows out of that reality. So when we think about success, when we think about things that matter, I want us to just hit pause on the sound, the noise around us. And I want us to rest in what this passage gives us. If you'll hit the next slide, it gives us a picture of Umberto's church. That's a tarp. What's amazing is 
The choices that he made in ministry depended on his identity in Christ. To the very end, he was a day laborer. <laughs> he, he'd worked a job on a road with a pickaxe the day before he died. Um, and yet his ministry still lives on. I still remember the songs that he wrote for the church. And I remember the way he lived it. He lived a life that mattered. I want us to, that's, that's sort of what we're thinking on. That's what I want us to think on. A life that actually matters must die to self and live to Christ. In other words, it's not about what you do or what you accomplish. It's about what Christ accomplished for you. That's the thrust of what we're looking at. So if you would keep your Bibles open, feel free to, we're going to park on verse 20 for a little while. And I'll go ahead and read it again. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What's astounding here is the work of Christ. Again, you know, if you read Romans 12 or there's these other passages, Mark 8, 3, 4, where it says, take up your cross daily and follow after me. And it's, it's things that we're supposed to do, right? That's how I've so often read them. And yet, in verse 20, note that the work is not ours. There's four aff affirmations, and it's all Christ's work. It's all what Christ is doing. The first one, I have been crucified with Christ. This is a powerful argument for the total sufficiency and efficacy of the word of Christ. It's not active. It's not, I need to, or Paul's not saying, I, he's saying, I have been crucified with Christ. It's in the passive. He did nothing. The Lord did it. It's astounding. It also reminds us of what God, that God brings life through death. When we think about being crucified with Christ, you did not die on the cross. You didn't do it. Christ did. And yet, there's an element to where if we are in Christ, we are so closely associated with Christ. Christ's death covers everything that we've done. There's another passage in Ephesians that I love that I feel like illustrates this best. Uh, it, it, in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verse 5, it says that we are dead in our trespasses, but God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Then it goes on to say, and he raised us up in him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's in the past tense. So that means right now you're seated in the heavenly places. I don't feel like it. I feel like I'm standing, first of all. It doesn't feel like it. And yet, it's an already but not yet. We, it's not a present reality, and yet there's, because we are in Christ and he's seated at the right hand of the Father, there's this, there's this reality. It's real. It actually it is more than, it's more real than this world that we're in. If you're in Christ, your future is guaranteed. We've been crucified with Christ. This also talk, shows us the way God brings life through death when we think about death. Because Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 15, through Christ, death was killed by death. You ever think about that? It's just, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, right? God killed death through death. We have hope because of Christ. So when we say, I have been crucified with Christ, there's so much hope that comes with it. And we, had, we didn't do any of it. Christ did it. The second thing I want us to think about is that Christ gave himself for me. The Son of God, the Son of God, the God of the universe, gave himself for you. I try to think of an illustration that does it, but there's just not one that does. 
He became a man. He lived, he died, and rose for you. Think about the one who holds the world together was held by a mother for you. Humility, that brings. The very founder of all knowledge had to learn for you. The God that never sleeps slept on the ground or didn't sleep, depending on the night. The very life of humanity gave his life for you. The Son of God gave himself for you. It says there in verse 10. It also says that Christ loved me. It says the Son of God loved me and gave himself up for me. Loved me. Now, I feel like it's too easy for that to just become a trite. Yes, God loved us. Yes, absolutely. But if you actually think about the love of God, I mean, why did God love us? Deuteronomy 7 says, it's talking to the nation of Israel. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples of the world who are on the face of the earth. But it's not because you were more numerous than many other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of people. But it's because the Lord loves you. Why does the Lord love you? Because he wants you. The Lord loves you. First Corinthians 2 talks about how God chooses the foolish and the weak things of the world. Congratulations. You made the cut. <laughs> There's nothing that we bring to the table. Nothing. It's not because you're smart. It's not because you're good looking. It's not because you came from a certain family. He chose to love you. He wanted to love you. We bring nothing to the table. How long will he love you? Psalm 136, over and over and over, repeats, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. To what extent will God love us? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Against what odds? Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Right? Not life, not death, not... When you think about that phrase, Christ loved me there in verse 10, there's so much packed into it. And it's the work of Christ. Finally, just the last one is that Christ, last thing this verse says, Christ lives in me. Now this idea of us in Christ is a major theme in Paul. Right? We've already seen it a little bit. Elsewhere in 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. She is a new creation. The old has passed away. Excuse me. Ephesians 2.6 talks about being seated in Christ in the heavenly places. But this is a little bit different. It's Christ in us. Christ in me. And rather than look to Paul, there's a couple places in Paul that do this. I'd like us to think about John chapter 17. John, I know you're not supposed to have a favorite chapter of the Bible. I love John chapter 17. It's a prayer. It's Jesus praying for us. And in that prayer, in verse 20, John 17, 20, he starts, I do not ask for these only, talking about his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus, the Son of God, prayed for you in John 17, before you were born. That's nuts to me. That they may be one. That was the sermon last week. Why did Jesus pray for us? For unity. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then in verse 23, I in them, Christ in us, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love me even as you have loved me. Christ in you means you get to participate in the love between Father, Son, and Spirit, which has been going on since before there was such a thing as time. This passage reminds us of who we are in Christ and how we are to live.
but it's so easy to miss this foundation of why it's true. It has nothing to do with us. We bring nothing to the table. But it's amazing. It's astounding. It's overwhelming. I'm going to give a sports metaphor, but it's not for the people who play, who like sports. So many times there's a sports metaphor and they go over my head. This is one for the rest of us. Have you ever watched a person watching sports? <laughs> do you know what I mean? People that are really into it, the ones that plan their schedule around what the football schedule will be like. You know, they don't go on vacation if it's a Saturday that, I mean, right? Uh, or they go up to the table and they're right there and like, yeah. They only go get nachos if it's the commercial break. Um, and then at the very end, this is the part I love. We did it. No, you didn't. <laughs> you were on a couch. You got a drink. Like you, ah, you did it. And yet, they're intertwined, right? This person and this team, the success of the team is intertwined with the person. And first and foremost, no, it's Christ's work that accomplishes our salvation. We did it. Nah. And yet, our identity, who we are, is tied up in what Christ did. It's who we are. So that's the second point. The first point is the work of Christ. The second thing I want to think about is our identity in Christ. Who are we? So often this is answered by what we do. We answer, you know, if a person asks, who are you? You don't hear that question very often, to be honest. Uh, but the first answer that comes to mind is what we do or what we have done. Uh, if you're a graduate, it's what's next. Oh, I hated that question. Um, I'll try not to ask it today uh, when we're eating outside. For PhD students, it's when do you finish? <laughs> don't ask a PhD student that. They'll start crying on the spot. Um, <laughs> But culturally, these sort of determine who we are. And when we apply it to our faith, I think that's how legalism seeps into our thinking. Whether the good things you think you've done, you're not as good as you think you are, I'm not as good as I think I am, or the bad things that we know we've done, you're not what you do. This passage tells us who we are as Christians. We are justified through faith, and we are dead to the law. Look at verse 16, and I know I'm sort of reaching back to verses that belong to Joel last week, so I'm going to borrow just for a second, where it says, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. We've talked about this already, but to be justified is to participate in this triune love, to be part of the family of God. But it's so, it's the, the simplicity of the gospel is, no, I don't deserve this. I'm a sinner. I'm a terrible person. I've done terrible things. My thoughts, oh, they're reflected in my actions. And yet the Lord loved me anyway. He so much that he died for me. And so to be justified is simply to put your faith in Christ's work. It's not a whole, it's not a whole list of doing. It's a list of being. It's a list of uh, resting in Christ. And the simple gospel pushes against a self-righteousness. See, there's nothing that you have done or can do that contributes to your justification. This idea that you are made right with God. There's nothing that you bring to the table. I'm going to read the Westminster Shorter Catechism uh, because I love the way it describes justification. Justification is an act of God's free grace. Who did it? God did it. Where he pardons our sins and accepts us as righteous in his, in his sight. Great. What did we have to do for it? Nothing. Only through the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. And it's received by faith. It's simply believing, putting our faith in what Christ has done. 
It's not Christ plus anything. You can't, there's nothing you can add there. Secondly, though, we're dead to the law, it says in this passage. Not only are we justified by faith, we're also dead to the law. The theme of Galatians 2 has been, it's not Christ plus anything. You can't, you don't have to add Sabbath laws, you don't have to add circumcision, you don't have to add all these feasts, right? You don't have to live as a Judaizer would live. No, it's faith in Christ. That is what saved us. That's what saved us. And so when you come to verse 17, it's driving home this point that we should trust in the work of Christ. However, I'm going to be honest with you just for a second. I've struggled with verse 17 a lot. I didn't know how to read it. There's two options. As I was wrestling through it, kind of landed on one, and I read a bunch of commentaries, then I landed on the other. I'm still not sure. I'll be honest with you. And yet, I think this is worth, worth me mentioning just because the two options end up with the same conclusion. Christ does not lead to sin. So I'm just going to show you the two options. Uh, and I think the beauty of this is there are some parts of Scripture I don't understand, even though Boston, what, what in the world? Um, and yet, we use the clear parts of Scripture to illumine the parts that we struggle with, that we don't understand. There is so much clarity in so much of this. And I, I hope that that will illumine the parts that this guy is struggling with. In verse 17, there's sort of two options. There's two ways that we can read it. One of them is, are we lying? If we first say that we're justified by faith alone, but then say that we must keep the law, by telling people to trust in Christ, are we leading them into sin? That's sort of one option to read this. Another option is the old Roman Catholic challenge. Won't people just say a prayer and then live however they want? Aren't we encouraging people to sin by telling them that they are saved by faith alone? Because if you're saved by faith alone and it doesn't matter what you do, let's party, yeah? That's sort of the idea. But the answer to both is certainly not. Christ is not a minister. He's not a servant of sin. You see, Christ himself, for the first one, for the first option, Christ himself said that he was the only way to the Father. And if you keep reading, in verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God so as righteousness could be gained through the law. Christ died for nothing. So if, if that's what Paul is leaning into, the answer is certainly not. If it's the Roman Catholic challenge, the thing is, as a Christian, when you do sin, your faith in Christ, and you have faith in Christ, if you compare your selfishness and your sin to the work and grace of Christ, your sin becomes so revolting. There's not, it's not possible to actually have put your faith in Christ and not be constantly changed. Yes, you will sin. You will mess up bad. And yet, when you think about how you messed up, oh, Lord, how could you love me? And it makes his love all the more amazing. And it makes you, de you desire that the Holy Spirit would change your heart all the more. It's simply not possible. The thing is, if the Judaizers are right in Galatians 2, then doing leads to being. And works leads to justification. And you will never do any of that. Never. We have no hope that that's the case. But if we start by being with God. I wrote chilling with God. I know I said it. Because you are in Christ, you can't help but do. The clear portion of this tells us we must rest in the work of Christ. And no, it does not permit, allow, or lead to sin. And so, how then shall we live? Living to Christ. And this is this final part. Now, 
I would love to say that Paul here gives us six easy steps on how to live for Christ, but he doesn't. We've talked about how our being depends our Christ, on Christ, but even our doing, even our action, even the things that we're meant to do as we live out the Christian faith, also depends on the work of Christ. Think about verse 20 where it says, The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Martin Luther talks about this passage and he says, It's true that I live in the flesh, but this le- flesh, whatsoever it is, I esteem as no life. For in the very deed, it is no true life, but a shadow of life, under which another liveth. That is to say, Christ, who is my true life indeed. Which life you see, but only here, as you hear the sound of the wind, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. Even so, you see me speaking, eating, laboring, sleeping, and doing other things, yet you see not my life. For this time of life, which I now live, I live indeed in the flesh, but not of the flesh, or according to the flesh, but in faith of faith, and according to faith. Martin Luther, the Reformation, he says, it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Living to Christ means in our lives, we must increase, and he must decrease. When I went through ordination, that was the charge that that pastor I respect and I love and admire for the rest of my life told me, you must decrease, Christ must increase. What we do, our sanctification, is the process where we look more like Christ. But even in that, it's not what we do. Even in the Westminster, it talks about how we're renewed and we're made after the image of God and enabled to die to sin and live under righteousness. Again, it's the work of Christ. And the only and the best example I can think about this, to compare this, is washing dishes. I remember going to my grandma's house in Pennsylvania probably five years old and I was washing dishes with my dad and it was awesome there was water everywhere (laughs) and the dishes I thought were clean were not clean but my dad was smiling and my grandma walked in and she said honey you're doing a great job was I washing the dishes no I was trying (laughs) I was throwing water everywhere I broke a couple plates was tiny Uh, and yet my dad was so pleased that I was doing a good job just wasn't perfect just to be together to be doing it together but I would try the Lord it brings the Lord joy to our efforts but remember we don't really do much he's allowing us to participate like a parent and it brings him joy to see us try but he has to clean up our mess it's the same in ministry it's the same in our daily life it's the same in parenting Who's the one that does the work? So we think about living to Christ. My encouragement to you is to depend on what he has done. In your busyness, I've given up telling people don't be busy because it just doesn't work. Uh, In your busyness, rest on this truth that Christ is doing the work and that you can rest in him. Graduates or adults, whether you've started work or you're thinking about retirement, Live a life that relies on the work of Christ and take your value from this. A life that matters is not consumed about a to-do list. And I love lists. Live a life that relies on the work of Christ and take your value from this. Constantly gauge why you're doing the things and where you're putting your value. As you read the Bible, meditate on who God is and what he has done. As you pray, listen and wait. Don't just pray and do all the talking. 
as you work, ponder why the Lord has provided this opportunity or this challenge. In the men's breakfast this week, we were talking about Brother Lawrence, right? The guy that joined a monastery and then he ended up in the kitchen. But then it was, how can I worship and pray and think through each challenge? How can God use this to make me who I ought to be? Seek to pray and worship through each part of your day. I know we're missionaries. Uh, my pitch, you know, is usually supposed to do, here's the list of things that we're going to do when we go to Columbia, South America. I was, some of those pictures I was raised, my dad was a missionary. Uh, and so many times the life of a missionary is full. I sold my car yesterday. I'm shipping boxes in a couple days. I'm, you know what I mean? There's all these to-do lists that are going to get us there. And yet, when we go to Columbia, my prayer and my hope, we'll be training pastors at a seminary. My prayer and my hope is that these students would learn to prioritize being versus doing, that they would walk with God, that they would firmly, fervently depend on him in their ministry and regularly return to the basic simplicity of the gospel. And yes, I'm teaching in a seminary. Yes, I'm teaching classes. But I ask that you pray that they would not depend on their learning. If I depend on all this schooling that I've done, if that's the, it, it, they're helpful tools, but if that's the thing I depend on, I've missed the boat. We're called to depend on the Lord himself. I rewrote the sermon three times, to be fair. That's because I didn't want it to be terrible. <laughs> and yet, any possibility of this being used in a person's life has nothing to do with my rhetorical skills, my energetical skills, my good-lookingness. <laughs> my prayer is that these students would realize their need for Christ and be guided by the Spirit. And that these theological tools will help them to better understand the Bible, guard against error, but I pray that I would not teach them to depend on their schooling or to depend on me or to depend on themselves, but they would solely depend on Christ. Like Umberto, that their identity, who they are in Christ, would guide what they do. And so that when it comes to the lies that are swirling around us of what value is and what purpose is and what success is, they would be able to see through it. They would be able to see who they are in Christ. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would establish the work of our hands because we have first established ourselves in you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the way Paul reminds us of how we are to live. The way we are to live is in total and utter dependence on Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you that you have saved us from sin, and thank you that you have called us to a life where we are to die, that we might live forever with you. Teach us to be first so that we can do. And that in doing, we would not lose sight of who we are. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. At this time, we're going to do something that we've not done in quite some time. And that is that we're going to do an offering. Um, we have not been passing the plates for various reasons and concerns. And uh, God has been so faithful, and you have been so faithful during that time, so I want to thank you for continuing to support the church. But this is a tangible way that we can give back a portion of what God has given us through our tithes and offerings. And, and as we uh, pass the plates, John and Teresa have some music that they prepared for us. Uh,
Uh, John and Teresa have been a tremendous blessing to us during this short season that they've been in Pensacola. Oftentimes they have not been upfront and visible, but they have been hard at work behind the scenes. Uh, Teresa has been helping with our children's ministry. John has been a continued su- uh, source of support and encouragement to me and to our church. So we're so grateful. Send them out in our name as they serve the Lord in Columbia. Let's collect our, our tithes and offerings.